Hello, Becca. That's a healthy glow. It is, because I, I went to Malta recently. Ah, <sighs> Malteser. I know, Malteser. I don't know how much you know about Malta. Uh, Maltesers uh, I have no idea if they're linked, <laughs> but sure. Um, yeah, it's an island in the Mediterranean. It's kind of between Sicily and North Africa. And it is freaking beautiful. It yeah. is amazing. And the architecture was just fascinating. Really? The architecture? Yeah, I, I didn't really expect it, but... Um, they're all made from, all of the buildings are made from the same stone. They're like beautiful creamy limestone that the island itself is made from. And yeah, I was just fascinated. So I spoke to a guide, I spoke to an architect to try and get under the skin of the island a little bit more, the rocky, rocky skin. Over the centuries, Malta has been swept up in the great imperial struggles of the world. Controlled by Sicilian, Venetian, Roman, Arab, French and British rulers. Almost everything has changed. Even the language shifting and adapting, resting today somewhere between Arabic and Romance languages. I've always found it fascinating. The last time I visited I was barely out of school, and I was amazed by the distinct culture which had somehow emerged from this chaotic history. Sure, the Baroque interior of the co-cathedral would fit in well in Italy. And naturally, the imposing militaristic lines of the Grand Harbour and the daily ceremonial cannon fire across the water were straight out of Victorian England. But there was something about the stepped streets, the cream-coloured houses on the waterfront, gently dissolved over the years by wind and sea. The ever-present shrines and statues devoted to the Virgin Mary that felt distinctly Maltese. Not French or British or Arabic or Italian, or even a mix of all of them, but definitively different. My boyfriend Johnny and I had flown in from London, but ended up landing late because a fire at the airport meant all planes had to be rerouted. Walking through security, we spotted a few sheepish firefighters hanging around near the airport's huge fish tank, which turned out to be the surprising source of the fire. Waiting to greet us on the other side was Dr. Nick Sukmanyev. My name is Nicole Sukmanyev. I'm a tourist guide. Guiding is my passion. By he profession. was there to show us around on our short visit to Malta. He laughed when we told him what had happened and said that this was as good an introduction as any to the island. A bit shambolic, a bit late but always friendly, my kind of place. Guiding is my passion by profession. I'm a diplomat and my vocation is uh, the priesthood. I'm uh, an Orthodox priest and monk. Like Malta itself, Nick has multiple identities. He's a big guy with an easy smile, rolling walk and thick-framed glasses. And as he speaks, he pauses frequently to find exactly the right word, drawing syllables out and waving a hand as he thinks. In the short drive from airport to hotel, he filled us in on the big picture Maltese history and culture. Everything from who they would be supporting in the World Cup to why it's so hard to find a cup of traditional Maltese coffee and how the role of the church is changing in this deeply religious society. Nick explained that each imperial power that tried to conquer Malta arrived with a new set of cultural values and religious beliefs. But some of the most fascinating buildings in Malta are from even earlier. Now these temple complexes were uh, built to do religious 
kind of rights. The people would not go in there. Uh, they were erected uh, for uh, divine purpose, the goddess perhaps of fertility, uh, or some other gods that uh, uh, they may have adored. Uh, because uh, we have no written or remains, we only have the statues that are discovered. And those statues are of large, large uh, bodied, what we think, ladies. It's impossible to identify their uh, sex because they're like wearing robes. We drove across the island to the southwest to see firsthand the Stone Age temple complexes of Hajarim and Umnaidra, ruins of crumbling limestone set atop cliffs and facing out towards the Mediterranean. The gourd-shaped buildings are now roofless and covered with an arching white canopy to protect them. As you enter, the sound of the wind and waves dies down, and the smell of earth and the sound of birdsong comes to the fore. It may be hard to imagine now, but these peaceful temples were once the site of some pretty occult ceremonies. Um, these would uh, actually be the places of the altars uh, for sacrificial rituals. There were only sacrifices of animals, not of humans, because of the bones that were discovered uh, in these temples. So initially they did sacrifices of uh, animals. Later on, they started burning them. And uh, we would have this uh, uh, evidence. Some of the stone slabs are very dark uh, and some of them uh, are red and kind of burned from a very strong fire. I but thought as I looked at these ancient the ruins that to the Maltese, this limestone, visible everywhere as you get around the islands, is more than just a building material. It's a bridge to their past and the beliefs they once held, the one constant in a country constantly in flux. A lot of people come to, to, to see the temples because they make Malta quite unique for being such a small island and having so much uh, world heritage. It gives uh, uh, the, uh, a sense of pride and uh, a sense of belonging. So although uh, the language is uh, Semitic, Arabic, uh, that uh, we have European culture and, uh, uh, of course, we try to explore the areas of similarity of cultures and uh, be sort of uh, a bridge between Europe and Africa, Europe and the Middle East. Malta was a crucial spot in the Mediterranean. Whoever wanted to uh, rule over Europe, Southern Europe, or protect Southern Europe, always wanted to rule Malta. The next day, we headed off in a rented car to the hushed cool of Medina, a walled city in the northwest of the main island. It has the reverent atmosphere of a library or perhaps a church. After all, it's home to 250 people and 27 churches. Like the temples, this city was constructed using Maltese limestone, and today arriving there feels like stepping back in time. Many of the houses are still in the hands of the aristocratic families who have owned them for centuries 
preserved and protected as part of the heritage of the place. No new buildings can be erected here. I mean, uh, very vigorously protected place. And uh, it, people joke that to put an nail you need a permission in certain properties. Um, but just when you think you've got a handle on this historic city, it throws a surprise um, your way. There is quite a lot of, uh, of treasures and really amazing... Was there yeah. A washing? There was a nun in the car. Certainly a not nun from... The, yes, went I, past oh, in a car in Medina. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's very, that's very common sight, yes, <laughs> on Malta. Yeah, they just drive around <laughs> these minivans, yes, and... Oh, yeah. Local gang. Yeah. <laughs> Malta today has come a long way. Its beautiful cityscapes and clear waters attract more visitors every year, over 2 million in 2017, in a country with under 500,000 inhabitants. But between the quickly constructed concrete hotel complexes and the gutting and restoring of older buildings in the cities, it can be hard to find the ancient history in Malta's modern skylines. Back home in London, I thought about everything I'd learned about this tiny dot in the Mediterranean. The more I found out, the more questions I had. Today, Malta may be independent, but is modern tourism causing changes just as permanent as its past occupiers? Yeah. Connor's here. Okay, I just changed my shirt. <laughs> it's 40 degrees outside. Yeah, it's actually to try to understand how Malta will look in the years to come, I spoke to Konrad Buhaja, an architect and co-founder of Architecture Project, a firm which has worked with greats like Renzo Piano, to start us off, I asked him why Valletta looks so unlike other European cities I've visited. Well, Valletta was uh, built um, as a new town, so it was built from scratch. It uh, was built at a time when there was a sort of a traditional antagonism between the Ottoman Empire and the Christian kingdoms in the West, following what was a that successful attack of the Ottomans' navy in 1565, an event which we call the Great Siege. The then Grandmaster who was from Provence, a guy called La Vallette, decided to build a fortified town. So Valletta was originally built as a military machine to keep out the enemy, in this case, the Ottoman Empire. Um, and it's a typical 16th century Renaissance town, very much like many other towns in Italy, which were built about the same time, built on the principles of the Renaissance, the humanistic principles, which were set out by various philosophers and architects of the time. Um, the only difference between Valletta and the other cities, like Palma Nova, etc., which were built about the same time in Italy, is that Malta being in the centre of the Mediterranean, it, went, it underwent several changes, particularly because of its strategic position. Uh, and Valletta didn't remain stuck in time as the 16th century, but was ev eventually evolved into a Baroque town, and then the 19th century town during the time of the British, so it's um, a town which was built from scratch, but has continued to evolve. Walking through Valletta, I saw a jumble of architectural styles from across the centuries. Despite its diversity, the stone, whether bright under the midday sun or glowing pink and gold in the evening, created a sense of unity throughout the city. But this harmony seemed to go beyond the colour and texture of the stone. What is it that links the austere neoclassical frontage of the co-cathedral the Baroque flourishes of the Auberge de Castile and the smooth flowing lines of Parliament House. 
Well, architecture has always been, or building, has always been one of the mo most important industries on the island. In fact, you notice even during the 16th and 17th century and 18th century, the knights used to invent projects to keep people employed. So a lot of the fortifications were built were actually supporting the economy of the nation. And building has always been one of the most important industries that has kept the economy of the nation buoyant. So even to this day, building is an enormous business um, and a lot of building is happening on the island. Um, the old buildings were different in that they were all built of the same material. If you go back 7,000 years to the ancient uh, temples, the beauty of the ruins of those temples is that they're all made of the same local stone. The ceilings were made of stone, the, the floors were made of stone, the walls were made of stone. And up till very recently, up to the 80s, I would say, this method of building used to be extant all throughout the islands. And even the tools that were used by workmen uh, on site were the same tools that used to be used by the medieval and the Renaissance builder. So there was a continuity between what was being built in the past and what was being built uh, today. Much of Conrad's work centres around conserving the heritage of Maltese buildings while meeting the demands of an island with a swelling population and a booming tourism industry. Uh, as you know, heritage is uh, a resource which comes down to us from the past and is a kind of language with, through which we can speak to the people who were here before us. And to a certain extent, the way we live, the way we think, the way we interact with each other, our culture, is informed by their achievements and their labour, let's say. So certainly it's worth celebrating in that um, they have given us this enormous gift, which is the urban landscape within which we live, the architectural gems which we enjoy, uh, and which are not only fascinating because we use them today, but also because they have embedded in them a lot of lessons from which we can build our own lives and our own philosophies. So it's not like starting from scratch and we're not reinventing the wheel, we're building on something which people before us have been creating for centuries. But how much of this heritage is being lost in the rush to build cheaper high-rise buildings to accommodate the number of tourists? Of course, times have changed and the economic benefits of a building have changed. So a lot of the urban uh, developments around Valletta, not inside Valletta, are based on residential blocks which are eight stories high and recently there was a great debate about tall buildings and this particular case buildings which are 30 stories high and 35 stories high and uh, for the first time in Malta these tall buildings are sprouting out and breaking what was before the horizontal skyline of, of the island. Technologies are changing very fast and whereas my parents built more or less in the same way as their parents and their parents in the same way as their grandparents. Today, things are changing so fast that it's become really difficult to be able to predict what the needs of the future are going to be. But I think a building which has certain fundamental qualities, beauty being one of them, will survive better in the future. After visiting Malta again, speaking to Nick and Conrad, it was clear to me that the warm stone that makes up the landscape of Malta is at its cultural and historical heart. 
But Malta is far from living in the past. It is constantly evolving and adapting, and it always has been. If this stone can't meet the demands of modern life, Malta will adapt again and use something else to house the influx of tourists coming to experience its fascinating heritage. Only time will tell if Malta can manage this delicate balancing act. It needs to protect and celebrate the heritage which is attracting all these people, without being so tied to the past that it can't move into the future. When we were studying at university, um, we used to use a lot um, a quotation from Walter Benjamin, and he says the angel of history has its wings spread open, it looks back at the past longingly, but there is a big wind which pushes him forward. That storm is called progress. So progress is relentless and it will continue going and I, the worst thing that can happen is for someone to get left behind. The problem is not so much that so much building is happening which is not in the same scale and the same materials as the past. The problem is can we make these buildings architecturally relevant even though they do not follow the same principles as that of the past. Firstly to Nick and to Conrad for speaking to me for this episode. Thanks also to my charming co-host Neil, resourceful researcher Femi and eagle-eared producer Alana of Reduced Listening. Thank you also to our MD Agnieszka and to everyone from the Malta Tourism Authority who helped with my trip. And thank you of course to you dear listener. If you enjoyed this episode please head over to iTunes and leave a review. It always makes us smile. Join us next episode when Neil is going to have a little look at the human side of the Galapagos. Thank you.